There is no arguing that the human race has come a long way in agriculture. The manual labor of people and animals is now replaced with high-tech farm machinery, and effective pesticides and fertilizers bring more nutritious foods to the table faster and more economically than ever before. The latest in that agricultural technology? Now scientists have the ability to improve the food we eat on the genetic level. But this growth is not without opposition. This election season, Californians narrowly voted down a proposition that would have required all foods that contain these genetically modified ingredients to carry a label. Meanwhile, farm salmon, borrowing a gene from a cousin fish which allow them to mature at a faster rate, are swimming in upstream battle for government approval, and a staple crop enhanced to also provide necessary nutrients is blocked by environmental groups from reaching poor parts of the world. This is Eye to Eye, an Ayn Rand Institute podcast. I'm Amanda Maxim, and I'm joined today by phone by Dr. Henry Miller. He's a medical doctor and a molecular biologist, and also the Robert Wesson Fellow in Scientific Philosophy and Public Policy at the Hoover Institution. His research focuses on, publicly, on public policy towards science and technology, and he's written extensively on the controversy surrounding genetically modified foods. Henry Miller, welcome to the program. Thank you. Delighted to be with you. So in your own words, you say that this genetic modification offers plant breeders the tools to make old plant crops do spectacular new things. What are some of these spectacular new things? Uh, well, there are, we might think of uh, genetic engineering uh, applied to agriculture as several more or less discrete uh, generations of products. Uh, the first, which has been with us for about 16 years now, has primarily focused on improved agronomic traits. Uh, that is, less inputs, less pesticides, um, uh, improved uh, herbicides, uh, new agronomic techniques, and so on. So these, these are traits that benefited primarily farmers, and uh, they've been monumentally successful in bringing uh, greater uh, food security and economic security to farmers, particularly in the developing world. Uh, <clears throat> the second generation might be thought of as uh, improved output traits, that is, uh, traits that are, that are useful to, um, to consumers, um, improved nutrition of, of oils, um, in, in incorporation of uh, vitamins to in, into uh, crops to prevent vitamin deficiency and so on. And this is fairly far advanced in laboratories and testing, but as you noted, some of this is being held up by the, the bleeding of uh, activists uh, and over-regulation. The, uh, the third generation is the production of uh, various high-value added products in plants that have been engineered to produce them or to overproduce them. And, and these are products uh, such as vaccines and um, uh, therapeutic proteins. And these exist already, but again, are being delayed uh, somewhat by the, uh, by the actions of activists and by excessive government regulation. So you talk about some of the traits that the crops or these food um, can obtain through genetic engineering. But can you tell us a little bit more about the process of genetic engineering? I mean, what does it mean for a plant or a crop to be genetically modified? 
Well, that's an important question. Uh, almost 30 years ago, when I was uh, an official at the Food and Drug Administration, uh, the agency head, who was my boss, and I had a, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that was called uh, Biotechnology, a Scientific Term in Name Only. And uh, there's a great deal of confusion about what biotechnology is, what genetic engineering is, and, and so on. Genetic modification, uh, genetic improvement of crops has been with us from, for millennia. And it's been done pretty much uh, over the years <clears throat> in a pretty haphazard trial and error way by farmers and, and plant breeders. In the 20th century, um, the sophistication of, of uh, genetic improvement improved a great deal. And that's usually <clears throat> thought of as a quote-unquote conventional uh, modification. But uh, it was uh, very successful in improving uh, grains, the, the uh, yields of grains in particular, and, uh, and, and also uh, fruits and vegetables. Um, and uh, it used techniques um, like, such as uh, irradiation of seeds to get useful mutants and um, <clears throat> wide cross hybridizations, that is the uh, hybridization of plants across uh, species or genus barriers uh, such that uh, you, you could get things that would not exist, could not exist uh, in nature. And then in the 1970s, we began to do uh, gene splicing or recombinant DNA technology, which moved genes from one source to another uh, very precisely and <clears throat> very predictably. And that's usually what we refer to now as genetic engineering, although, again, it's part of a seamless continuum that has existed for a very long time in order to uh, improve plants. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, uh, it, it's really quite irrational to focus opposition just on the most precise and predictable techniques for genetic improvement, and yet that's what uh, activists have done consistently and relentlessly and very vocally now for more than 20 years. So you seem to be saying that um, the activists have taken an unfair tack on this, what you call sort of the latest in the continuum from, you know, crossbreeding up to um, genetic modification. I mean, so do you have a, or what do you, how do you feel about the category of genetically modified? Is that something that's even useful in your view? No, it's not useful at all because uh, virtually everything that uh, is in the North American and European diet, uh, with the exceptions of wild game, wild berries, fish, and shellfish, uh, have been genetically modified, genetically improved by one technique or another. And so to, uh, to use the term uh, genetically modified or a genetically modified organism, GMO, just to mean the most precise and predictable method of genetic modification and to focus your ire and your regulation on that is, is completely absurd. It makes no sense whatsoever, and yet that's what's routinely done. 
This seems to me, though, that maybe they have some sort of a point, because if you're breeding plants together, I mean, that seems like a sort of a natural process, at least something that maybe could exist in nature. Um, but when you're going into the, the inner workings of, of cells and DNA, that that somehow seems more risky. I mean, what would you say to an argument like that? I'd say that that argument is exactly backwards, because when you, um, when you do classical hybridization, which, as I said a few moments ago, sometimes uh, in, is, it involves wide crosses, that is, the hybridization between a different genus or different species uh, that would not exist, could not exist in nature, but are, have been sort of forced in the laboratory, you get uh, <clears throat> mixing of thousands of genes willy-nilly in ways that are highly imprecise and largely unpredictable. Uh, in distinction, in contradistinction to the newer, more precise techniques. And in fact, there, there have been uh, a handful of significant problems with conventional genetic improvement uh, over the years. There have been uh, at least two varieties of squash, uh, two of potatoes, and one of celery that have been toxic in one way or another. Uh, and this is conventional genetic improvement, mind you, something that's much less likely to happen <clears throat> with uh, the newer molecular techniques. Uh, another good example occurred in 1970 when 15% of the U.S. corn crop was obliterated by a fungus called southern corn leaf blight. And the way that that happened is <clears throat> that plant breeders had inadvertently, because of the, the crudeness, of conventional genetic techniques had inadvertently bred into uh, popular corn varieties uh, sensitivity to this fungus, southern corn leaf blight. And 1970 happened to be a particularly good year climatically for, uh, for the fungus, and it destroyed 15% of the uh, U.S. farm yield, uh, corn, corn yield. So that's the kind of mishap that is uh, much, much less unlikely with the newer, more precise techniques than with the way that we've genetically improved crops in the past. And that's really interesting because one of the things that, or one of the arguments that I've heard against uh, genetically modified um, plants and organisms is that that's ex that's exactly the argument that we don't know what's going to happen, and that's one of the reasons why we should oppose them. So, I mean, what do you say to people like that who say, "Well, we're sort of better safe than sorry," especially when it comes to um, to to changing foods on the the genetic level? I mean, aren't we tampering sort of now too deeply with nature? And and can the same argument be applied that we don't know what's going to happen? Well, what do I tell them? I tell them to read my book, The Franken Food <laughs> Myth. Uh, no, it, it's it's an argument that's completely without merit. Um, again, we've been improving, uh, genetically improving uh, animals and plants and microorganisms in particular uh, for a very long time and very successfully. Um, 4,000 years ago, there was a, uh, a single variety of, of animal called the auroch uh, that resembles a uh, a kind of primitive cow, and it was used, or an ox, and it was used as a beast of burden and for food. And from that auroch, we have now dozens and dozens, um, perhaps scores of varieties of cattle 
cattle are very different in the Scottish Highlands from the wilds of Africa, from the, the uh, prairies of Texas, and they've been adapted for certain purposes and certain climates. And, and that's just one example of many of, of the, the improvement uh, of animals. So we've been doing this for a very, very long time, very successfully, but slowly and with the occasional misstep. But the, uh, the speed and the uh, probability of um, missteps are greatly improved with the newer techniques. It simply is more powerful uh, and uh, confers greater knowledge of the process of what you're doing uh, with, with the new techniques. So I want to talk a little bit more about the regulatory environment uh, surrounding some of the, the plants and, and animals that have been genetically modified. But first, I think it's probably better to go into, into one example. Um, can you tell us about the aqua bounty salmon? Yeah, there's, there's been a lot of misinformation about the salmon. Um, the, the salmon is a, uh, is a potential tremendous breakthrough because it can give us uh, a, a very high-quality source of protein at, uh, at a much lower price than is currently available on the market now. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a North Atlantic salmon that contains um, uh, a new gene, uh, a, growth, a growth hormone gene from uh, a different salmon. Uh, and that new gene uh, is turned on all the time as opposed to only part of the year, which is the case for salmon uh, in the wild. And uh, it, it enables the uh, aqua, it's called the aqua advantage salmon, is the, is the, would be the trade name. Hmm. Uh, the salmon uh, grows about 40% faster than its natural cohorts, uh, but it, it reaches mature, and when it reaches mature size, that size is no different from mature size uh, of the, the quote-unquote natural salmon. Uh, it's indistinguishable in taste and nutritional value and appearance and any, anything else you can measure unless you do sophisticated genetic testing on it to find this extra growth hormone gene. Uh, it, would be, uh, it would be farmed uh, inland, uh, even if it were, and the, uh, the, um, the fish that would be farmed would be only sterile females. So it's extremely unlikely that they'd get into the wild and, and uh, contaminate natural populations. Even if they did get into the wild, these are, uh, these are really wimpy animals, and they're not uh, equipped to survive in, in the wild. They don't have the knowledge. They don't have the strength. They don't have the instincts. Uh, and so uh, environmental effects or, or the possibility of, of environmental effects is virtually nil. Um, but um, it's, it's been opposed by activists. It's been delayed uh, inexcusably and unconscionably by the government. Uh, and uh, it's really chilled an entire potentially important sector of biotechnology or genetic engineering because uh, it's, it's been stalled for about 12 years and no developer in his right mind is going uh, to develop a food product that takes 12 years to get onto the market, even when there really are no outstanding uh, scientific or, uh, or technological or environmental problems associated with the product. 
So it sounds like the Aquabounty folks have gone, uh, you know, taken great pains to sort of mitigate what are seen as risks. So you talked about the salmon being farmed inland. Is that the typical way that salmon are raised? Uh, no, they're, they're, it's not the typical way they're raised. They're usually raised in in pens in natural waterways. But uh, but this is this was an attempt to satisfy even the the the, the most ardent critics and to address even the rem- most remote uh, possible risks. And yet uh, the activists are still opposing it. And in fact. The um, president of Aqua Valley has said that this was a very good lesson to him because he thought that by bending over backwards, by going the extra mile, that it would assuage the uh, objections and concerns of activists. And of course, it did just the opposite. It just fanned them. If the the gene that's been inserted into this farm salmon is is from another salmon, I mean, what's the difference? I mean, if you took the same two salmon and bred them, say, if you could do that to create the salmon that you're looking for, one that matures at a faster rate, would that be the kind of thing that would meet with the same amount of opposition? No, it wouldn't. But it wouldn't work is the problem because you need to put a you need to put a control element on the inserted gene in order to get it to function all year round uh, instead of uh, just during the winter time, as happens in nature. So it's it's really a very minor and conservative change, but it's one that uh, that would not occur in nature. And you said that it's being held up in the the regulatory process. Who do they have to get approval from? Well, ordinarily it would be uh, it would be the FDA, uh, and and this gets into kind of the arcane uh, mechanisms of how this product is regulated. Uh, <clears throat> FDA decided. Uh, I think wrongly and unnecessarily to regulate this in a very, very stringent way as though, uh, as though the animal were a veterinary drug. And their rationale was, well, it's, uh, the, the animal, the fish, is expressing uh, a, new, uh, a new growth hormone. And that's really not uh, philosophically, conceptually different from injecting it with a veterinary drug. And veterinary drugs for flea protection or uh, to cure infections or whatever are indeed regulated by FDA. So they uh, subjected uh, this salmon to a, a, an extraordinarily stringent review that required years and uh, were ready to approve it about a year and a half ago. And, and that, that approval was uh, for reasons that are uh, apparently political, that that decision was hijacked by the White House uh, Office of Management and Budget and officials uh, above the level of OMB. And they've been sitting on this uh, approval for uh, for more than two years, uh, or about a year and a half now, uh, completely unnecessary, unnecessarily and extra-legally. So how long do you think it'll take before we can we can taste these salmon? Well, I, if if indeed the company decides to go ahead with it, I, I think it'll be probably later this year. Uh, I think uh, the uh, all of the environmental reviews and the public comments and the extended public comments and the uh, and the assimilation of those comments 
will probably be done later this year or sometime next year. But but this has become just, uh, if you'll pardon the expression, a red herring for the uh, for the company. This it's a it's a catastrophe, and uh, their their stock has shrunk to nothing. Their prospects, uh, I think, are limited for using this technology for fish. Uh, and as I intimated earlier, it's really discouraged an entire potentially important sector of biotechnology that would be especially important for uh, for the poor in this country and abroad. Yeah, I would imagine it would be hard to to start a business or to keep a business going for how long did you say they're in the regulatory process? 12, 12 years? years. Wow. Yeah. yeah, so how... It's hard to imagine that such a company could become or could be economically viable after so long. Exactly. Yeah, so you talk about this, the Aqua Bounty, who is you know, sort of at least going through the regulatory process and trying to fight to get a, approval. But there have been other companies in the United States and major companies such as McDonald's and beer brewer um, Carlsberg, who have dropped or eliminated genetically modified crops from their products entirely. And, and they've done that, it seems, at least voluntarily. So maybe you can walk us through the history of what happened with McDonald's and, and their potatoes. Well, uh, McDonald's and a few other companies, uh, Gerber's uh, Baby Foods, um, simply capitulated Im- immediately to demands by activists that uh, they not uh, use genetically engineered ingredients. Um, it, it's, it's very unfortunate. Uh, my uh, my view is that uh, those companies and others should simply who who have vast uh, uh, advertising budgets obviously should just assure customers that they're going to provide the uh, the highest quality foods um, using the best technology at the best price period whatever that technology happens to be whether it's uh, sous vide uh, cooking or uh, pasteurization or um, uh, ir- irradiation to uh, to kill bacteria. Uh, it, it behooves them uh, for reasons of ethics and also liability to use the very best technology that's available. And many of them have chosen not to. Well, doesn't mean doesn't that imply that so that these genetically modified crops are unsafe if such a large company like McDonald's decided not to use them? No, it, it, it implies that uh, they're, they're afraid that, uh, that activists will stand outside and hand out uh, photographs of deformed babies and say that it's due to genetically engineered products. And uh, that, that's what they're afraid of. These products are demonstrably safer, safer, than conventionally produced products. And that's especially true of grains uh, because um, what happens with, um, with, with many grains, uh, particularly corn, is that um, insects who are uh, feeding on them punch holes in, in, the, uh, in the, the stems and the, and the leaves, which provides entree to fungi, some of which are toxic and produce significant amounts of toxins. So in various studies, uh, when organic corn products, corn meal, corn chips, uh, and so on, were compared to conventional, 
they were found to have much higher levels, in fact, uh, higher than allowable levels often uh, of, these, of, of one of these potent toxins called fumonisin. Uh, and uh, and that's, that's what you get when you have uh, susceptibility to uh, insect predation. So if you've ever seen uh, organic arugula, for example, mm-hmm. next to conventional arugula, organic arugula looks terrible. It has, it's filled with holes. It looks like the, the uh, leafy equivalent of Swiss cheese, whereas, uh, whereas uh, <clears throat> there is no uh, similar predation on conventionally produced because pesticides were used to kill the insects. And it's the same with corn. Um, Organic ears of corn uh, quite often have a little uh, caterpillar inside who's taken up residence, whereas you don't see that in conventionally conventionally produced corn, which has had pesticides sprayed on it. So uh, it's it's all a trade-off, but uh, technology really does, on average, uh, make our foods safer, more palatable, and also less expensive. Yeah, I mean, well, looks are are one thing, but I've also heard arguments that genetically modified foods cause cancer, which is something that you wouldn't be able to see while you know, just by looking at what the food looks like. So I'm wondering if you can speak to that. Do genetically modified foods cause cancer? That's completely, utterly bogus. Uh, there's just there simply isn't any evidence for that for that kind of assertion. Period. I thought there was some study with rats. Yeah, there was a, a, a rat study done in, uh, by a French investigator, who uh, who's who's been widely accused of fraud and in, uh, in in that experiment and uh, uh, has been widely condemned, including by French scientific associations. There are huge numbers of problems with that study, but the main one is that he used a strain of rats that uh, that uh, normally uh, develops significant numbers of tumors uh, as it gets older. It was kind of it was developed for that and for scientific work. So uh, uh, the there there isn't a significant uh, difference between the controls and the rats fed. Uh, genetically engineered material. It's just a totally bogus, poorly done, really uh, fraudulent study. Well, it seems like uh, maybe someone like you might have some high-level scientific knowledge on the risks involved, but how should a layperson who you know, just goes to the grocery store and wants to buy food that's, that's healthy and nutritious and good to eat, how should they evaluate the risks that are involved while eating genetically modified foods? Well, there there are um, uh, there are genetically engineered ingredients in something like seventy or eighty percent of the processed foods on supermarket shelves. So uh, we all eat these products. We've been eating them. Um, we um, we in North America alone, we've eaten. Uh, my calculation is something like three trillion trillion servings of these foods with genetically engineered ingredients. And uh, uh, without the, uh, a single documented case of a tummy ache or, uh, uh, or red spots breaking out or anything else. Uh, and uh, in, in the process of, uh, of creating uh, these plants and from which these ingredients come, 
we've saved vast amounts of uh, pesticide applications uh, and, uh, and also carbon dioxide emissions. So it, it's just been a win-win-win to have uh, these products available. No one should worry about that at all. I think if they're worried about anything, uh, they should be worried about the, uh, the threat of food poisoning and uh, uh, t- uh, toxic uh, fungi in organic foods at the supermarket. And you've talked about our regulatory environment here and sort of the attitude of activists, like you said, but I'm curious about how our regulatory environment in the United States has affected other parts of the world. And I'm wondering if you can specifically tell us about the golden rice controversy. Well, golden rice is one of those uh, second-generation crops that I, that I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, it's fortified with beta-carotene, the precursor of vitamin A. And vitamin A deficiency is a terrible scourge in much of the world, um, with uh, hundreds of millions of kids affected and, uh, and many millions uh, becoming blind each year because of the deficiency. And of those who become blind, 70% go on to die within a year uh, because of malnutrition and, uh, and, and a variety of systemic problems. So this is a potential lifesaver uh, in, in parts of the world, uh, tropical countries where rice is the mainstay of, uh, of calories. Um, rice kernels normally uh, do not produce vitamin A, and, and therein lies the problem. So uh, a Swiss scientist and a German scientist about 15 years ago came up with these uh, rice varieties that contain beta-carotene. It confers a yellow color, and hence the, the term golden rice. This is, uh, this is obviously safe. Uh, it's been tested in, in animals. It's only uh, vitamin A pre- precursor uh, that it, 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 it uh, causes it to differ from uh, the parental rice, and uh, and yet it's been held up by regulatory barriers for many many years, for about nine or ten years, and this is a catastrophe. This is uh, this is really mass murder, and yet uh, there's very little objection to this, uh, it, and and ironically, the objection to it comes from. Again, the anti-biotech activist groups who object to the prospect of its being approved and its being consumed, which is uh, beyond irresponsible. It's barbaric. Um, we, we think that uh, it'll be on the market um, within a year or two, but uh, that will be of scant consolation to the, to the kids who died and to their families uh, during the past decade. So what does the future hold for genetically improved foods? What's, what's on the horizon? Uh, they're going to continue to dribble out of the, uh, out of the regulatory agencies, but um, they'll be primarily uh, huge-scale commodity crops, such as the grains. Uh, the vast majority of uh, genetically engineered uh, plants now are uh, corn, cotton, canola, and soy because they're huge scale and uh, the companies that produce these seeds can afford to, uh, to uh, comply with the, the onerous and expensive regulatory requirements. Um, it, it, there are a few exceptions. Papaya is one. 
the uh, uh, papaya ring spot virus resistant papaya uh, saved the uh, the papaya industry in Hawaii about uh, eight or nine years ago. Uh, so that was a real breakthrough. But that was that was the exception that that proves the rule. Um, it, it'll be more difficult to have. Uh, uh, the, the genetic to have um, the gene splicing technology applied to so-called specialty crops, that is, fruits and vegetables, uh, because of the huge expense in, incurred by uh, getting these approved. Great. And where can our listeners uh, keep up to date on your writings? Um, on the uh, Hoover Institution website, um, and anyone who's interested can go to uh, uh, fellow under fellows and find my name, and uh, you'll get a brief bio and links to all of my articles. Well, great. Thanks for joining us on the program today. You're very welcome. You've been listening to Eye to Eye, an Ayn Rand Institute podcast. This episode with guest Dr. Henry Miller is titled the politics of genetically modified foods. You can find more information about Dr. Miller under the Fellows tab on the Hoover Institution website at www.hoover.org. Information and episodes of this podcast are available on the Voices for Reason blog at blog.einrandcenter.org or on iTunes. You can find more information about Ayn Rand and her ideas on the web at einrand.org. I'm Amanda Maxim for Eye to Eye.